Well, good morning. It is a great joy to be with you here today for this, the first worship gathering of Richfield Bible Church here at this property. Thanks for joining us for this special Sunday. For those who might be visiting with us for the first time, at this time in our gathering every week, we open up our Bibles to study them and to listen to God's voice from God's Word. And for quite a while, lately here at RBC, we have been studying the book of Romans together, and we will likely get back to that next Sunday. But for this first gathering here at this building, I'd like to step aside from our regular study of Romans and to take us to one of my favorite psalms. This morning I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 2, to the second psalm. Now for our Old Testament reading, just a little while ago, we read Psalm 1 together. And perhaps you can remember how the book of Psalms starts with a song about how blessing and joy and satisfaction is held out to the person who does not fill his heart with the counsel of the wicked, but who instead fills his mind and his heart with the very words of the living God. As Psalm 1 said, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season. The book of Psalms as a whole, all 150 Psalms, the book begins by laying out two paths. One path of rejecting God's words, which is a path that leads ultimately to destruction and death. And another path of loving and embracing God's words, which is a path that leads to stability, fruitfulness, and ultimately life. In other words, the, the very first psalm introduces us to a very simple idea that runs throughout the Bible and especially throughout the psalms. is that what will, what will make all the difference in our lives is what we do with the words of the living God. But then we come to the second psalm, the psalm we're going to be looking at together this morning. And as soon as we start to read it, we realize that the feel of Psalm 2 is very different than the feel of Psalm 1. When we read Psalm 1, for example, like maybe a picture comes to our mind of somebody studying God's words, reflecting on them, maybe talking about them with others, praying through those words, trying to understand them, know what significance they have for our lives. But when we start reading the second Psalm, we are immediately introduced to a group of people who are meditating on something else. Something far different. Look at Psalm 2, verse 1. Look at the question the psalmist asks. He says, why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot or meditate? It's the same word as in Psalm 1. In vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the first scene, if you will, of this psalm. Psalm 2 is going to have four scenes. And the opening one is not serene or placid 
or calm. I mean, just think of the descriptions in those verses. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. The kings are digging in their heels. The rulers of earth are conspiring together. And the question we want to ask is, against what? The answer is that they are united together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, the Messiah. But it's not just, you know, against Yahweh, right? It's, it's against his king, his anointed. They've set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, against his Messiah, against his king. Now, what are we supposed to picture here? Like, you think historically, like, this psalm's been sung, you know, throughout all kinds of generations. So, like, what, what was supposed to be the picture in people's minds when they would read this psalm or sing this song? Like, who are these kings and who is God's anointed? Now, at least initially, I think we should think of a king like David. He was God's anointed king. And with God's help, David conquered many, many foreign kings during his reign. So perhaps you could picture these conquered kings, you know, maybe all like huddled together in prison or something like this. And what are they doing? Yeah, they're, they're conspiring together. And what are they saying? Let's break off the chains of the God of Israel and of God's anointed king. Now, now the psalm can certainly fit with something like that. And I think maybe people sang it thinking about things like that. But when you look at it closely, what's going on in Psalm 2 is clearly not limited to just like a local uprising against, you know, just, just David or something like this or one of his sons. Now, this scene is set on the world stage. I mean, we've got the nations raging, the peoples of the world plotting, kings from all over the earth gathering together to overthrow the reign of God and of his king. <clears throat> this is human rebellion on the world stage. <clears throat> and sadly, as we read the Bible, we find what we find is that this sort of attitude toward God and his anointed is deeply ingrained in the human story and in the human heart. From the moment humanity first rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden until now, the natural bent of the human heart and the consistent story of the human race has been what you're seeing in this text, that we do not want God to be God. We want to be king. And that's the end of the first scene. Right. Scene now changes. And as you'll see soon, the location has changed too. In this scene, we're no longer like listening in to this like private kind of secretive conspiracy that's being hatched against God. Now, this time, the psalmist takes us up to heaven because he wants us to see what's happening there and so that we can hear what the one seated on his throne in heaven thinks about what's happening on earth. Scene two, beginning in verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So you get like the kings of the earth conspiring together to overthrow God, to kick him off his throne. 
And what is God doing? He is sitting in heaven, laughing. Now, to be clear, though God is laughing, he does not find this funny. Far from it. As our translation goes on, it says, the Lord holds them in derision, which I think probably doesn't communicate much to most of us. Other translations say, the Lord ridicules them. The Lord scoffs at them. I mean, just try to imagine all the kings of earth digging their heels in. <clears throat> They've entrenched themselves against God and his king. And yet, what is God doing? God is sitting there in heaven, mocking them. But then God speaks. And when God speaks like he does here, it causes even kings to tremble. Verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. But here's the question, what does God say? It's not what we might expect. Verse 6, God says, as for me, and as for them, they do whatever they want. But as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I mean, think, think of the contrast. The kings of the earth determined to overthrow God and his king, but God says, I've established my king on Zion, my holy hill. You may attempt to dethrone my king, but I've enthroned him on Zion. And the implication is, he's not going anywhere. Now to scene three. But this time, we're not going to hear from the kings of earth. This time, we're going to hear directly from God's king. From God's Messiah. Verse seven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the Lord told me, ask me, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the third scene, God's anointed begins to speak. And what does he say? He says, this is what the Lord said to me. He told me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, we're not going to go back to this text this morning, but what is going on here with that language is very related to what God said to King David himself in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. In that story about David, God promises David that one day he will have a son who will rule over a kingdom that will never end. And in that same story, God says this to David about that son. God tells him, look, David, I will be a father to that son, and he will be to me a son. Now, on the one hand, you think of this psalm, right? This psalm is ultimately about that son, okay? This psalm is celebrating the coronation of that king. God says to his anointed king, on coronation day, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. On the other hand, if we think about how Psalm 2 might have been used in Israel, it wouldn't be surprising if the people sang this psalm every time a new king from David's line came to power. I mean, that happened for hundreds of years. 
a new king would come to power from David's line, like Solomon or later descendants like Hezekiah or Josiah. And the people may very well have sung this song thinking about how God was installing a new son of David on the throne in Jerusalem. And to a certain extent, what is said in the psalm is true of Solomon and those other kings from David's family because God did treat them as sons. God did install them in Jerusalem on Zion as he promised, and he did that to king after king for a few hundred years. But when we read this psalm, there is clearly something more in it than that. After all, God says to the king in this psalm, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. I'm going to cause your rule and your reign to reach to the ends of the earth, and you're going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. I mean, sure, God installed many sons of David on the throne of David, but this son in this psalm is destined to rule not just Israel. This son is destined to rule the world. This son of David will be, in fact, greater than David himself. Final scene change. Conclusion. This time, the psalmist himself speaks. And he says what she should do with this. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist now calls out to all earth's kings, and what he says applies to all who would ever consider joining them in rebellion against God, and he says, be wise and be warned. Why? Because God himself has installed his son as the king of kings, and his son will reign, and his son will soon bring all human rebellion to a screeching halt. So the psalmist says, instead of continuing to rebel, the time has come to lay down your arms and to start serving the Lord with fear and to start celebrating his rule with trembling. But that's not the only charge in the psalm. Right? The right response isn't simply what you ought to do to the Lord. Do you see how the psalm ends in verse 12? And the psalmist says, and kiss the Son of God. That is to say, bow the knee to God's Son. Do homage to the Son. Submit to Yahweh's Son. Why? Lest he get angry and you perish in the way. If you don't respond to God's Son the right way, what will happen in the psalm? The wrath of God and the wrath of the Son will soon come crashing down. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now it's clear that throughout the Bible, God is incredibly patient. Even with total rebels, God is really slow to anger. But when it's time for wrath, and we don't know when that time will come, nothing will ever be able to hold him back. This is as serious and sobering as it gets in the Psalms. But did you notice that the Psalm doesn't end with a threat? It ends with hope. It ends by saying, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
Now, do you sense the, the irony in the psalm? I mean, think about what it's saying. What is the only way for a person to be spared from the judgment of God and the wrath of the Son? It is to run, not away from the Son, but to the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So when we step back a bit from the psalm and we take the first two psalms together, we get a really good picture of what's important in the Bible as a whole and the psalms in particular and what this church is about, right? I mean, how blessed are all those who saturate their hearts in God's words? And how blessed are all those who submit their hearts to God's Son? But all that we've been talking about leads us to the biggest question about this psalm, and it's, who is this son that Psalm 2 is ultimately pointing to? Like I said earlier, it wouldn't be surprising if God's people, I mean, they did sing this song. It wouldn't be surprising if they sang this psalm at the coronation of every new king from David's line. But as I also mentioned, Psalm 2 clearly points us beyond somebody like Solomon or any of the sons of David that we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, it points us to somebody who would be even greater than David himself, but to whom does it point? It's not until you get to the New Testament that you finally get the answer to that question. Hundreds of years after this psalm was written, a humble Jewish man, a son of David, a man named Jesus of Nazareth was, a, was born. We know some about his birth. We do not know much about his life prior to 30 years of age. But around the time he turned 30, this man named Jesus went out into the waters of the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when, and when Jesus came up out of the water that day, a voice came out of the heavens. And this is what the voice said. You are my beloved son. God made known that day that he had sent his one special son into the world. But do you know what the rulers of Israel did to him? They conspired together against him. And then they went over and they got the Roman rulers to work with them. And they seized God's son and they killed him. It was like they were saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast off the chains. But these rulers did not and would not have the final word. It was God, not them, who would have the final word to this story. So on the third day, after Jesus' death, the third day after the unjust slaughter of the Son of God, God himself raised up his Son from the dead. And just listen to how the Apostle Paul describes that day. This is from the text Chris read from our New Testament reading. He's, this is what they would preach. This is what the apostles would preach. They would say, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. On that day, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus was vindicated. He was proved right and everybody else was proved wrong about him. And Paul says that these things that happened to Jesus were the fulfillment of the very psalm that we've been in together today. Jesus of Nazareth is David's greater son. 
He is God's one and only Son. He is the one Psalm 2 is ultimately pointing us to. He is the one true Lord of the world and King of all kings. This is the answer to the who is Psalm 2 ultimately about question. <clears throat> but that leaves us with a final question, so what? And while there could be many things we could take away, I want to keep things simple. So first, a couple of big things for our church to remember as we move forward together. I think today marks a great day in the history of our church. God has richly blessed us over the past four years. And we come to this building feeling afresh God's kindness to us. But as we come into this new stage in the life of the church, I wanted to go to Psalm 2 this morning to remind us of a few very simple things that haven't changed since last week. The first is that Jesus is still reigning. He was reigning before. He is reigning today, and he'll still be reigning tomorrow. We do not know all that will come our way as a church. We do not know all the challenges that lie ahead. We don't know what blessings we may experience or what unexpected opposition may arise. But we do know this. Jesus is reigning, and he's reigning over this church and over this city. We are in his hands. He's in charge, and we need to keep our eyes on him. Our success or failure as a church is not dependent on a building. I really like this building, but I've never cared that much about buildings. I was happy to meet in a little elementary school with chairs that were dangerous. You know? <laughs> but I'm, ha I'm really happy to be here. But our success or failure as a church isn't dependent on where we meet. We're in the hands and service of a king whose reign will never be overthrown, even if all the gates of hell poured out all their vengeance against him. Second, our mission as a church is still to extend the knowledge and reign of Jesus to every place and to every people. We exist as a church to follow Jesus together and to make followers of Jesus from every nation, every tribe, and every people. And that's one of the things I love about Psalm 2. <clears throat> I love how this psalm talks about how Jesus will inherit the nations. The ends of the earth will be his possession. How is Jesus extending his reign right now, though? In this age, Jesus is working through his church to bring in the nations to serve him. This is why we exist as a church. We are here to follow Jesus together, and we're here to call those around us to get behind Jesus with us. And my hope for us about this place is that this building will simply be a tool that God uses to allow us to make greater inroads for the gospel. But also I hope in the long term that this place will become a base from which we can spread the knowledge and the reign of Jesus to the ends of the earth better than we ever have done before. And then two final remarks for us as individuals. If you're here this morning and you've yet to bow your knee to Jesus as your Lord, my call to you is the call of the psalmist. Submit to and run to the Son for refuge. Now, what are you waiting for? There will be a day when it's too late. And, and when it's time for wrath, his wrath will be quickly kindled and there'll be no escaping it. One of the things I love the most about Psalm 2 it's how it shows us that the only, the only way 
to be spared from the wrath of Jesus is to run to Jesus. You can't run from him. It's only in God that we will find ourselves safe from God. Remember how the psalm ends. Kiss the Son. Look to the Son of God who died for you more than that, who has been raised, who indeed is seated at God's right hand. Cry out to him for mercy. That's what it is to run to him for refuge. You, you look at him and you cry to him for salvation and for mercy. And you do it while it's still called today. And the psalm will say to you, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And then finally, for those of us here today who have submitted our hearts to Jesus and who've run to him for shelter from the coming judgment, my challenge to us is very simple. Keep submitting and keep running. We have no other Lord than Jesus, no other place to run for refuge but Jesus. Keep saying yes to whatever Jesus says to you. That's how we should come every, every Sunday already saying yes before you ever hear. Because if it's from God's word, we always, we always say yes to Jesus. And then we just keep running to the sun for shelter. No matter what the suffering or opposition that we, we may face, the attacks of Satan or whatever it is, we just keep, keep submitting and we keep running to the sun for shelter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great day together this morning. Would you please take these words and by the power of your spirit, would you press them deep into our hearts and would you break through hearts of stone and bring forth new life and would you take these words among your, your people and would you challenge us and renew our faith and our obedience and help us to keep submitting to Jesus and to keep running to him. Thank you for that that this is the path to the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, and the true satisfaction in this age. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.